Namo tasa bhagavato alahato sabra sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato alahato sama sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato alahato sama sambuddhasa Bhutang Dhammang Sankang Namasami. For today's Dhamma talk, someone asked me to please give a talk on Upeka. I know that you've only got a, just joined Dhammasara Nuns Monastery, so I have to talk about Niroda and Hasapanya Quick Wisdom later on. But this is talking about Upeka and its practice in meditation and in your daily life, and also how, what it means in the deeper meditations and the insights which come from them. And as the party scholars sitting in front know, it literally means just looking on. It doesn't mean sort of the indifference, it means something much more than that. And there's all these great stories, you know, which I was taught, you know, from people like Ajahn Chah, the first story, which you know, was one of those tales which you, know, you look upon many, many times and you get much, much more understanding. That was that story of the monk who was uh, in his hut. The wind blew off half the roof and he just decided to be uh, inquanimous or indifferent and he just moved to the other side of the hut, which was just underneath the, the, uh, the covered roof and let the rain fall into the other half. And he got roundly um, criticized by Ajahn Chah. Because, yes, you might say, I'm just letting go, but you're not doing your duties. And, uh, but what are those duties? And the same thing happened, I remember seeing this. I never saw that monk, but I did see once when we were starting Bodhinyan, uh, starting uh, Wat Nana Chat Monastery, and for those of you who don't know that it was first called uh, Wat Bar America Wat, because most of the monks were from America. That was its first name. And we're building a hall there. And the abbot at the time decided just to not get involved. And he got very heavily criticized by Ajahn Chah. And I was there when Ajahn Chah was really sort of uh, slugging him, saying that, no, that that is the wrong type of equanimity. We have some duties to be done. And of course, the standard story uh, in the sutras is of the, the Yaka Sutiloma needle hair, uh, who decided to try and check out whether this person was a Buddha, fully enlightened or not, sat next to him and leaned against him with the prickly um, hair, and the Buddha leaned away again. And they said, there we go, that you're not equanimous, you know, you're just afraid of pain. And the Buddha gave this wonderful answer, no, this is is things which you should be afraid of. It's your almost duty to be afraid of them. But thinking about what does it mean by your duty to be afraid of these things, your duty to to look after the monastery in which you live, your duty to (coughs) repair a hole in the roof when you're meditating. And the, and the answer is that, you know, to me, that sometimes if I'm equanimous now and don't do anything, 
It's not in my interest or other people's interest. It's more work later on down the line. It's as if that if you allow Suchiloma to move into you, then you're going to hurt, you're going to have wounds which need to be looked after by yourself and other monks for a long period of time. It just creates too much business for you. It just gets you more into the world. If you can just put a, a more pieces of steel on top of the roof, you get that done, then that heart is going to be there for you much longer. It literally is less disturbance to act at the right time. And it's the same way that you do need hall. So get it done, do it, and you'll find it's less disturbance further down the track. The very fact that, you know, I built this hall in which we're sitting in. My name's on the building license. You built it well, low maintenance, so you don't have much to do with it afterwards. So that's the idea of doing the duties. In other words, doing what would lead to the minimum amount of discomfort for yourself and other beings. It's a nice little way of looking at it <coughs> because it just shows that sometimes this idea of, of just indifference is just it's not an efficient way. Even uh, the person who asked me to talk about this was saying that sometimes that people are asked just to uh, bear with physical pain which comes up in meditation and uh, instead of moving or doing anything with that physical pain, just <coughs> enduring it with equanimity. In other words, trying not to react to that pain. And of course, and I quoted Suchi Loma, the Yaka's story, and also just quoted many experiences I had when monks who I knew, they tried to endure the pain and beat it down. And you know, that's not what a monk is supposed to do. It was, as you all know, the first instruction given by the Buddha after his uh, enlightenment the middle way, not to go to those two extremes. To actually to find a middle way, a comfortable way. And that idea of physical comfort, we're not talking about the mental world now, we're talking about the physical comfort, will actually define how I understand you know, the practice of upeka. In this physical world, if there's something you can do to make the body more comfortable, then do it. If there's nothing you can do, you know, then just let go. And, you know, the comfort is just a basic comfort. We don't need the comfort of, you know, indulgence, making sure that every hut for the monks and nuns is like a mansion. You know, that <coughs> many of you, you know, you get used to, you don't need toilets inside the huts. You get used to that, just going out into the bush if you want to have a urinate or, you know, just you know, having a walk to the communal toilets if necessary to do something. Now you find after a while you get used to that. And for those of you who say, yeah, it's all right for you to say that, Ajahn Prabhu, you've got an ensuite. But remember that for many years I was just a junior monk and I had to just go out into the bush, you know, carrying an umbrella to squat down and do my business for years and years and years. And I still remember... <laughs> A funny story, because sometimes the talks can be a bit boring. The funny story that where that water tank hut is, and you've still got the roof there, 
I was just uh, having to have a defecate and there was no toilet or any place to go. So I just squatted down and I looked very carefully all around me to make sure that there was nobody around would see me for obvious reasons. You have to lift up your sabong. And I thought, if anybody does come, they'll be coming along the path either from where the ablution block now is or from you know the main road area. So I faced that way. And of course, if something wrong can happen, it does happen. One of the Anagarikas, I still remember his name, John Mangan. And he, or maybe Amanderson remembers him, and he had his mother and sister visiting. <laughs> and for some reason, I can't understand. They went to where the big A-frame now is, and they walked right over the hill through the bush, right behind me, <laughs> with a full view of my holy backside, uncovered. <laughs> It's one of those cases, I was really being careful. But it doesn't matter how careful you are, sometimes people decide to do what you'd never expect and you get caught out. But anyhow, you get used to that and it's no big deal. It was just a funny story, that's all. And they sort of took it in good heart and had a good laugh. Fortunately, in those days, they didn't have these mobile phones with cameras. (laughs) (laughs) These days, you get shot. And build the internet. Um, but anyway, so that's uh, sometimes I went through that as well. So it's no big deal. It's, it's comfortable enough. So we find this beautiful middle way where we work hard enough but not too hard. Where we move away from discomfort. We move away, as the Buddha said, from the fire, from the snake, you know, from things which are going to make us. Um, hurt and cause even more problems for ourselves and our fellows in monastic life afterwards. It's just a sense of common sense. If I don't look after my body enough to keep it healthy, then I'm going to cause trouble for others. And the same with you. If you don't look after yourself, then you know we have to keep taking to doctors and look after you. And that's a lot of business for the Anagarikas and for the other monks. You know, if you get very sick, we really look after you, you know, full on. And, you know, that's why that we try and keep healthy. So we don't just sit there and just endure pain and think that's, that's equanimity. That is causing a lot of problems for yourself and for others later on. We don't just, you know, let the roof leak. That's going to cause a lot of problems for ourselves and others later on. There's a sense of there's something to do, and if we can do it, we do it. That's a bit of wisdom. The equanimity is balanced by just simple just wisdom and kindness to yourself and the other people you live with. And when you understand that, you understand just why. You know, we have those stories of the Buddha and Suchilama, or we have Ajahn Chah's story of, you know, the person who was um, just moved from one part of the hut to another without repairing it. We do have some responsibilities. The responsibility is just to be wise and to be kind to, to one another and to this place in which we live. And when we understand that, we can take that even further. That, you know, <coughs> for the responsibilities we have to our own practice. 
yeah, there is a time to just to you know say, well, you know, I'm meditating. I can't really get very far anymore. I'm just going to just relax a little bit and just do nothing. That upeka. Now, sometimes people mistake that you know, some of the times which I teach meditation, it's a very nuanced approach which I try and teach of letting go and doing nothing and, and just watching. But for those of you who remember the full teachings which I give, I often say uh, that simile which of the thousand petal lotus, that when you are practicing the path, when you are meditating or just practicing, just cooking or sweeping or whatever, the two factors which open up a lotus, especially with meditation, which get deeper inside the body and the mind, are just compassion or kindness and mindfulness. That I remember uh, describing as the light and the warmth of the sun, which hits the lotus in the morning and opens the lotus layer after layer after layer to go deep inside the lotus. And of course, you know, you know that's Mindfulness and kindness is what you do, or what I do, to my body and mind to go deep inside. That's, if you like, what I do. (coughs) So it's not just equanimity. It's not that I do nothing when I meditate. There is a sense of doing something. Being mindful, encouraging that mindfulness. Being aware. And of course you know what uh, I mean by being aware. You know, my definite psychologists have got this great definition of mindfulness, you know, which is a bit weird, but my understanding of it is being in the present moment and being silent. You know, that basic ground of mindfulness, you know, being here, basically, in this moment and being silent. Well, I keep telling people, be a human being, not a human going somewhere. Be here. And that degree of awareness, just in this present moment and being silent, because every time you start thinking, you're not really being mindful, you're not really here, you're being in this other world, the world of thoughts. I know the Buddha says it's all these different worlds, karma loka, rupa loka and arupa loka, for if you don't know what those mean, it means the world of the five senses. The uh, rupa loka is basically jhana, jhana, jhana realm. And Arupa Loka is the immaterial realms. But you might also say that there's such a thing called no Vitaka Loka, <laughs> you know, thinking world. And you know what I mean. They're all your fantasies, all your dreams, all the the world of thoughts which many people get absorbed into. And that is not sort of being mindful. That is losing your mindfulness. And all the words are just approximations. That old story I won't repeat it here, Lao Tzu when his disciples said, what a beautiful sunset, he wasn't watching the sunset anymore. He wasn't mindful of the sunset. He was mindful of the words. So you're either mindful of the description or you're mindful of the thing itself. And the two are very different. So the mindfulness really is mindful of the thing itself without the words to distract or deceive you. And that is basic mindfulness, which does take a bit of uh, establishment which I keep on saying, this is what you do at the very beginning. If the mindfulness is already there, you've had some good meditation, you're awake, you're peaceful, fine, you don't need to do anything. You can practice upeka then, just looking on. But if you haven't got that degree of mindfulness, somehow or other you've got to um, 
encourage it. You've got to do something. And to be able to do something, as I was mentioning, because sometimes when you start doing something you control, you start to mess things up and get tense. There's this very skillful way of doing things, which is letting go of everything else except the, the task which you really want to focus on. So you, <coughs> you don't go and grab on to the object of your meditation. You don't sort of grab on to the, uh, the pot of soup which you're cooking. You just let go of everything else. So that's all that's left. And that's a beautiful way of focusing. It's sort of a doing, but it's mostly a letting go. A letting go of everything else except the task at hand. And when you can train like that, it's very different than grabbing onto that task, you know, with effort, with, with control. Because that makes you tense. Sometimes people mistake. They think that the only way that they can focus is to grab onto something and hold it, you know, for, for grim life. Is that the right word? I forget. Anyway, you know what I mean. Hold it just tenaciously and don't let it go in case you know, the other things come up. That is one way of focusing, but it's not very effective. You do get tense and you can't maintain the focus. But if your practice is to let go of everything else except the task at hand, reject everything else, then you find that all that's left is you know, just maybe the breath you're watching or maybe you're watching your body. And if you practice like that, you know, that is far more effective, far more soft. And if you want to remember the way of letting go of all those other things, one of the greatest ways, which I mentioned, I think, at Jhana Grove on Tuesday, was to say to everything else, it's none of my business. So you say to just all the thoughts about what's going to happen next and the things you have to do tomorrow, none of my business. All those memories of who said what to who in the kitchen, that's none of my business, it's their business. All the stuff about the plants at Dharmasara, you put them in now, so it's none of your business now. It's the council's business. So you can just abandon it. And even the body, when I'm meditating, sometimes I say, it's itching. That's none of my business. You look after yourself. And as long as it's not an intense pain, that the body does look after itself. So it's my body's business, not my business. So I like applying that word, none of my business. Of course, it has the authority of you know, non-self. I don't own anything anyway, so it literally is none of my business. But I apply that to these other things. I might hear a sound outside. Somebody is snoring in the room next to you or in this hall if you're meditating here in the evening or there's a noise. That's none of my business. It's their business. So that means you can let it go. And you can focus on what is your business. So that is a sense of you know, how we actually do something. It's not just, uh, okay, I'm going to sit here and do absolutely nothing. And just thoughts come up and I just follow them. Sounds come up and I can hear them. Aches and pains in the body come up and I'm just right there, just worrying about them. Now that's, that's not going to work. So we have this beautiful sense of just focusing on what's going to be happening with mindfulness and kindness. And of course, the kindness is really important. You know, it's, when we talk about Upeka, we obviously you know, bring in the other three of the Brahmaviharas of Metta, Karuna, and Mudita. 
But, you know, with um, the metta, usually the metta is the most common of those bhāmiharas, you know, it is a sense of something you do, but it's not very active, it's not a very forceful thing which you do. And it's really important to have that metta, that kindness to whatever you're doing. And when you have that kindness to what you're doing, you can understand just why the Buddha just moved away from Suchiloma, the yaka, the needle hair monster. You can understand just why the Buddha said, no, no, you, you, know, you have to look after your monastery. You understand <coughs> just that if your meditation isn't working yet, Maybe it's too much upeka and not enough kindness. The two are very different. And if you can notice the subtle difference between those two, maybe you understand why the meditation hasn't taken off. It's amazing that when you do practice kindness, you know, I, I think without sort of blowing my own trumpet, as they say, or being arrogant, you know, I must be a pretty kind abbot. Otherwise, I wouldn't be in so much trouble with having too many of you in this room. <laughs> and you see what happens if, if you, there was another monk we were talking about a few days ago with somebody or other, and he, you, many of the senior monks know I'm talking about, but I won't mention his name, but he had the nickname Ajahn Grumpy. And he still lives by himself. You know, he's got a nice place, but no one else can actually stay with him. There's a couple of those, but the one I'm thinking of is in Australia. Uh, <laughs> and no one wants to stay with him at all. You know, he's got no kindness at all. But you know, Ajahn Brahm, you know, pretty kind, that's why we get a lot of monks and lay people and other people staying here. They can see that when you have that degree of kindness, you find that it's very easy to stick with an object. Because I'm kind to things like nimittas, you get lots of nimittas come and hang out with you. If you're grumpy, the nimittas, I'm not coming to that guy anymore. We can see just the kindness there is an important ingredient to stick the mindfulness onto the object, to maintain awareness, to keep whatever is in your mind there for a long period of time. Which is why that I've mentioned in many meditation talks, don't just you know, be equanimous with your mind or whatever's going on there. Treat it as a good friend. The idea of a friend, of a kalyanamitta, as they say, a good friend. You can make use of that, even though the Buddha meant that as like a, a being, like a fellow monk or fellow nun. You can also <coughs> mention that as your mind being a good friend. And I've often reflected because you know that the way of meditation, the way of the Dharma is not force, it's wisdom power. So whenever I had any problems in my meditation or my practice, I would not just force it. Nor would I use just, okay, just equanimity, just who cares. You know, just look at it and just do nothing. I'd actually investigate. And of course, investigation is different than than than, um, this upeka. It's actually you're inquiring. There's a sense of, of finding out. And that degree of finding out what was going on. You know, to me, when I was, why is my mind restless? Why won't it stay, you know, put and be still? 
And that's where you got the simile of inviting a friend out for a cup of coffee and telling the friend exactly what they have to drink and how long they're going to talk about, what they're going to talk about, where they're going to sit, what they're going to eat. Of course, no one likes to be with a person like that. But a good friend, someone you like hanging out with, is just so kind and sensitive to you. And making that observation of how you can stay with a long good friend and have a good time together and stay for hours. You know, sometimes you know what it's like, you're talking with a good friend and just minutes, hours go by. Why can you sustain your attention happily with that friend? Just kindness, that's all. And so seeing that from you know, your real life, you started to apply that to the meditation and the practice. I was kind to my body and kind to my mind. And then restlessness disappeared. The mind didn't want to go away. It didn't want to escape. And then you could be still. So the stillness came just again through awareness and kindness. And it was not an equanimity yet of just sitting there doing nothing. You actually engage with this whole process of meditation using mostly wisdom, not willpower. But it was a doing something, not just sitting there being stupid, just like the monk under the half a roof. You're actually being kind. And that was actually engaging and, and getting things happening in the meditation. So that's why that and always encourage. It's something which always works. You can't do it enough. Just be kind to whatever you're watching. Even as you have an unpleasant experience, which sometimes people have, you're bored, you're dull, you think you're going insane. Remember just that beautiful simile of the Buddha, of the anger-eating monster. To me, that was one of the most insightful pieces of psychology which the Buddha gave. A brilliant simile which you apply in all areas of life. All the monsters of life which come up from time to time. Whether it's, you know, just a parent who gives you a hard time, a spouse. Whether it's an illness, a pain in the body. Whether it's, again, restlessness or dullness or frustration. Please be kind to it. All the monsters of life, both mental and physical, which come up, internal and external. Be kind to them. And it's amazing, it's wonderful, just what happens. They get an inch smaller, less of a problem. Disappears after a while. <coughs> amazing piece of psychology, which you know works in so many different areas of, of the external life you have, the spiritual life, the meditation life. It works so beautifully. It's just, again, mindfulness and kindness. So then you get mindful, you become kind, and you become very, very deep in the meditation. And as I keep on emphasizing that the deeper you go, that's when you have to do less. The upeka actually develops. It becomes stronger after the metta has done its job. Once the mind is on, you're with your friend, you have this beautiful kindness, then after a while, just the stillness gets stronger. You just 
watch. That's what upeka means, just watching. And you find that that is you know, a very refined form of kindness. The kindest thing you can do is to let go, as I said at the funeral today. Now, of course, I meant that the kindest thing you can do, the greatest act of love to someone who you know, is your father or your, your husband or good friend, you have to let them go. But this is not just with people. You know, the kindest thing you can do is just to let the mind be. Let it be according to its deepest nature. When the defilements are gone, the mind is radiant. So when it gets to that stage, <coughs> you know, the nimitta stages, that's the radiant mind. It's amazing just how many times that in my life that people had noticed that quote, the radiant mind, the Pabhasa jitta, and of course they were trying to make that the ultimate, you know, the amateur jitta, the deathless mind, you know, that sort of stuff, that sort of go my young. And you know, know what that means. <laughs> and, but the Prabhasava Jitta was mentioned so much in my early life that, you know, that it became one of those words and you wonder what it was. And you know, only when you get some deep meditations, you know, and you have experience. And there is this beautiful nimitta, you realize that that is my mind, that's how I experience it, and it's radiant. It is, wow, okay, that's what the Buddha was meaning. It's so obvious to you. If I was actually, you now once you made that connection between that nimitta which you're watching is just the way that the, you perceive the mind. Once you realize that, that that is how you perceive the mind, then you understand why. If, if I was going to describe that in, in partly, I would call that Pabhasarajita as well. It just makes so much sense when the experience is there. So that's a lot of time, you know, to get the deep insights. You know, you just need the experience. And then all of these suttas, they just really open up. You know, you have an understanding which you can't get just, you know, from comparing the agamas and, and knowing Pali and Sanskrit backwards. You know, just because you're actually you're there, you can experience what the Buddha experienced and thereby know exactly what they're saying. But when you get to that Pabhasarajita stage, then again, that's Upeka really comes into, into its um, element, if you like. <laughs> there, because you, know, you don't need to do anything, it becomes this natural process. You can't help yourself, usually. In fact, if you do try and help yourself, it usually all goes pear-shaped and all goes wrong. So there comes a time when you know, that Upeka, the ability just to Watch in this moment. What I often call like the, the two types of patience, remember, the waiting for something to happen. That is the wrong one. That's not real upeka. We're just waiting in the moment. Just being here with that beautiful nimitta. You are literally looking on, doing absolutely nothing. Now that type of upeka is actually <coughs> an important part of the you know, this path, the important element. There is times when you have to do your duty. You know, for me, when I go travelling, that duty is to get the airport on time, check in, go through the the immigration, and then the the uh, security check, you know, get into the lounge and have breakfast. I don't really need to do that, but I like doing that. And then get on the aircraft, and as soon as you're buckled in, you're done. 
You've done your duty. Now you can do a peka. Just be. Without having to strive and do anything. And I like that simile because that's basically what meditation is. You get on your mat, that takes effort. And it's the effort of kindness and mindfulness. And you get to that particular stage, you know, basically I keep on saying that's the stage of the delightful breath. That's when Mayupeka really starts to, to come in. Up until that time, no, no, I'm doing my mindfulness and my kindness, not upeka. And then from that point, as if those two things have done their job, and now you just watch. Watch without reacting, which is part of the upeka. Part of the idea of upeka, to me anyway, that other people might argue with me, is that upeka means there's no more jadana, there's no more will left. Loving kindness, there is an element of will there, although I might say that's one of the most pure and refined parts of will, actually to have kindness. It's a soft, it's a gentle, it's not like a harsh, coarse form of will. But it is still, I would say, part of Chaitanya. But when you get to that stage of Upeka, it's almost without will. It's just not something you do, but just something which happens was when the will disappears. You're just looking on without interfering, without wanting it to be any different, without any aim, without any goal, without trying, without wondering when is the jhana going to happen, when am I going to get into the nimitta and everything becomes stable and I start to bliss out. That's not the upeka. Even that might be out of kindness for yourself, but that's the wrong time. Now's the time just to, when I say beautiful breath, that's a good enough time to do upeka and let go of everything else. And to be able to do upeka, you know, where does it actually come from? The only time you can really get into upeka, you know, really get into it, is when you realize that there's nobody in here doing anything anyway. That everything is none of my business. I really do mean everything. The mind, the jhanas, the bliss, it's none of my business. You can understand if it's none of my business, then, you know, is upeka there straight away got nothing to do, nowhere to go, nothing to attain, all these jhanas, enlightenment, yeah, if there was somebody there, it would be something to be proud of, and something to get, because I want to achieve it. Remember, all achievements mean there has to be an I, achieving something. It's a relationship between a sense of self and something to experience. And if one of those two are taken away, especially the sense of self, you know, what is achievement attainment? It doesn't make any sense anymore. It just doesn't exist. It doesn't apply. So just to really lessen the sense of self is actually to enhance the ability to apply upeka. The more sense of self you have, the more impossible it is. Yeah, you can play around, you can think it's upeka, but you're doing the upeka rather than just you disappearing and upeka is what happens. Just looking on, just looking, just watching, just being aware without reacting, without having any chayden, without having any will. And of course when that starts to happen, and if it's a real thing, of course, after a while it's just a matter of time because nothing is disturbing the process the process slows down. Remember, just keep on saying this, you are the problem. 
you doing something, reacting, the inability to disappear, the inability to just to let go and vanish and allow these things to happen by themselves, especially at that particular stage, that's a problem. But when you do disappear, then you get incredible states of mind. But you know, they always say Upeka, they have the Upeka, the fourth jhana, where it's really, really still. That's more like Upeka as an object rather than Upeka as a strategy. I'm just you know, describing this, you don't find this in the suttas. The Upeka of a strategy, if you like, is just the ability just to do nothing. The, when you get into the jhanas, just the basically the the mind and its object coalesce, you know, it's just that's the akagata. This is just experiential, just there's no space between you know, you, the observer on the the object. I don't mean the observer being a self or anything, it's just that sort of perception which you have in normal consciousness, and you know, but outside of meditation of you, know, you experiencing something. That totally vanishing, and just a sense of unity. You just you can't sort of move away, you know, from what you're experiencing. It's just the objects of the jhanas, the piti sukha or the sukha or whatever it is. You know, that is the observer. The observer is the object. And there's that sense of you know unity in there, and that uh, you know is just what happens. And after a while, just you. You know, there's a different flavors of happiness. And this, this is, again, one of the fascinating parts of the jhanas. You know, you always feel that, you know, this is the highest happiness you can ever have. And that's one of the reasons why you get so blissed out when you get these deep experiences, that some people, they still maintain, oh, that must be the, the nibbana. That is heaven, that is God. These are great experiences which I wish each one of you to have fully and then after a while, you get the next jhana happens, and that just blows you away. You think this is the deepest, and then you get, and it really feels like that. I mean, I can understand why people, you know, feel that they've touched God or ultimate consciousness or whatever, or amata jitta or whatever. You can understand their mistakes where they come from. It's just amazing, amazing, immense, biggest thing. Now, that's an understatement what's happened to you, and then you get deeper, another stage comes along. Different flavors of happiness, all more refined. And you get the fourth, the Upeka. Upeka is supposed to be the ending of Piti Sukha. But then again, Upeka is delicious too. That's why they call it Upeka Sukha. You can't get away from the happiness, all the different types of happiness, even Nibbana being the ultimate happiness, even though there's nothing felt or perceived there. So you have that wonderful sutra there where Sariputta says, well, this is, if you really want to understand what happiness is, it's the ending of afflictions. I always like that idea, the ending of afflictions. Just like today, just when you're having to go into town and do a funeral service, it's important to do that, so I do that happily. But coming back into this monastery, it was like happy now, I'm back again, the end of an affliction, of having to go in that car and going into town. You understand what you know happiness really is? The end of burdens, the end of afflictions. When sort of, you know, you come back and you can just meditate in your room, finished, after lunch, when all those people go away with their questions and I can go and just be by myself in my cave. 
That's afflictions. And the ending of it is always happy. So that's why the Buddha, not Buddha, Ajahn Chah always used to say he enjoyed the ending of things, the simplifying of things, and so they don't come back again. Ending all this stuff which we have to do as best we can. So we have less and less and less. So the path of Buddhism is not getting more and more stuff in life. It's every month, every year, having less possessions. Physical and mental as well. Letting go, not amassing. The way of the world is amassing more and more stuff, more and more experiences. (coughs) The way of the Dharma is lessening, ending things. That's why sometimes, you know, they used to say that a person who was suicidal, they wanted to end it all. If that's the case, and I'm suicidal, I'm a hopeless case, I want to end it all. <laughs> but end it all properly, not just kidding yourself and being there after you're dead. That just, that really sucks. That's why I say that anyone who's committing suicide, you are really dumb. You know, yeah, you think you're going to get rid of your problems, but they're right there, even more so once you know you've left your body. But anyway, just the idea of ending it all. And you see this is what happens. This, this is not upeka as an attitude, it's an upeka which you experience. And it's neither happiness nor suffering. But that is still a sense of deep happiness. And it's still suffering. As you go on to the next day, things disappear. When there's something still there to end, then that's suffering. When it ends, it's happiness. There's still something which is subject to cessation, that's suffering. When it ceases, that's happiness. Little by little, all these incredible peaceful states, incredible happinesses. When it ends, it's more happy. It's a weird, but very profound, not something you can think of, but just something you can experience. That's why that so much stuff of the Dharma, you just can't comprehend it without actually getting somewhere close by and starting to experience these things. Because what they say is like counterintuitive sometimes. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense that you come here, all you people from Jhana Grove, three months, and you're not doing anything, you're just sitting there, and but you're having a good time. Why didn't you go travelling, go to Club Med, go to, I don't know what you can do, see the Grand Canyon, see the Great Wall of China. I keep telling you, if you want to see the Grand Canyon, you can go over to China Grove, there's much erosion there, you can see lots of Grand Canyons down there. You want to see a wall, just go to the front of the monastery, one wall is another wall, you want to see the Amazon rainforest, We've had enough rain, we've got a forest, that counts. <laughs> there was a tree's a tree, for goodness sake. A river's a river. Want to see a waterfall? Just turn on the shower. <laughs> a lot of people are crazy in this world, going all those places to go and see these wonders of the world. It's only the wonders of the world because people say it's a wonder of the world. You'd be totally conned. But in the end, that. Actually, in the end, this is what we want, just the ending of things. When the journey is finished and you can be home, you can rest. That's bliss. 
when the washing up is finished in the kitchen. Bliss. When the body, just looking after it, feeding it, taking it to the toilet, resting it, when that's finished and you can just sit there and the body just done its job and you can just let it go. That's bliss. When the bliss finishes, that's bliss. This is actually what happens. And you understand what Upeka really is. It is part of the path of disappearing. It's not finished. Upeka is that which turns everything off. You no longer got Chaitanya anymore. So that part of Upeka, which is the absence of Chaitanya, just looking, no mudita, no karuna, no metta, that's all done its job. Now it's a job just to be, seeing, experiencing, and noticing that this is turning off the whole body-mind process. Six senses turning off. Six senses are on fire. We just chanted in the fire sermon. Their objects are on fire. The consciousness of these these six consciousnesses, even mind consciousness, is on fire. The amateur jitta is on fire. It's all on fire. What's experienced, the happiness, the suffering and the in-between, it's always on fire, it's burning. Sometimes you ask, how can neither suffering nor pain be burning? How can you have nibbida turning away from that? Now perhaps you understand. You turn away from it all. None of my business. <coughs> that's a coarse explanation of what Nibbida means. But that's not a bad sort of description of Nibbida. None of my business. So it disappears. All the stuff which is not my business. I've been trying very hard to delegate. When I go to Nolamara, I really that's one place I really try just to disengage from. It's none of my business. A committee in Nonamara Temple, it's none of my business. I just go and teach there and, and crash out there on the weekends when I'm supposed to be teaching. It's none of my business. Let the committee run that. And when you say none of my business, you just turn away from it. And then it disappears. It vanishes. It falls off your radar. And then there's a time when there is uh, neither pleasure or pain. And that too vanishes and disappears. So that is my understanding of like Lupeka and actually how it works. It's beautiful, it's part of the path. And but don't misunderstand it. It may be one of those most misunderstood of the four Brahma Viharas. You have to do the metta first. Kuna and Buddhita if you like as well. But when it gets to that point that these things have done their job then you can let them go. And then, just aware, with no chedana, no kindness, no karuna, no mudita, just aware. Then things disappear. So that's the talk for this evening on Upeka. <laughs> Very good. Thank you for doing your duty. <laughs> Our hearts are...
Bye.